Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Michelle Gallen grew up in Northern Ireland's County Tyrone, amid the period of sectarian bloodshed known as the Troubles. By the time she left home for university in the 1990s, her town was neatly segregated, with Protestants sticking to their neighborhoods and Catholics to theirs. Gallen's new novel, Factory Girls, takes place in a town much like this during the summer of 1994. While waiting for her final exam results, Maeve Murray lands a job at a shirt factory working alongside her best friends, Apha O'Neill and Caroline Jackson, and a gaggle of Protestants. It's the first time in their lives that the girls have spent time with, quote, the other side, let alone working under the thumb of a British boss. As tensions rise outside the factory, the temperature rises within it, too. And what started as a summer job ends up teaching and costing Maeve more than she imagined. Michelle Gallen's debut novel, Big Girl, Small Town, was shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award, an Irish Book Award, and the Comedy Women in Print Award. Like that novel, Gallen's new book, Factory Girls, is very funny, but also features some foul language. So if you're listening with kids, I recommend saving this one for folks who don't mind an F-bomb or two. Michelle Gallen joins us from her home in Dublin, Ireland. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks so much for having me. So like your first book, Big Girl, Small Town, your new book, Factory Girls, is a novel about being a woman during the Troubles. Broadly speaking, it's about a lot more than that. But what do you feel like was missing from stories about that time? Oh, I was talking about this recently with someone. And I think the thing is, is that for a long time, the troubles were dominated by this male narrative of, you know, kind of like it would either be a British soldier against a paramilitary group or a paramilitary group against the British soldiers. But it would broadly speaking, it was a male narrative, guys with guns running around getting sweaty, the sort of book that you might make a movie with Liam Neeson as the star of the show and it really kind of didn't dip into the more nuanced stories I mean the the female narrative was very much erased in these kind of the, the women were you know the occasional girlfriend or the sad mother you know going to somebody's grave or visiting somebody in prison and there wasn't the kind of complexity of experience that um, I think lots of people had growing up in Northern Ireland where we weren't all terrorists or, or British soldiers. There were so many more ways in which you lived in this conflict situation and so many more ways in which things affected you. You know, it wasn't just here's a conflict. You were also struggling against various things like class system, the, the patriarchy, you might be rejecting religion or, or trying to support religion. There were so many things surrounding you in that atmosphere that just make for more complex and exciting stories. I read the book thinking that a big portion of the story was like so detailed it had to be autobiographical. But then I was like, no, I don't want to insult Michelle by saying she couldn't have made it up. But turns out you did also spend a summer at a Northern Irish shirt factory, right? The summer of 1995? Summer of 95, which is not the summer of the book. But yes, I I just completed my first year in Trinity College, Dublin. And most of my classmates were, you know, jetting off on a J-1 visa to the United States to do really interesting jobs or, you know, work in casinos, to work in youth camps, just to, they were all doing cool things. And I 
pretty much went back home and my friends were working in the shirt factory and they got me an in as it's called and I got an interview I got into the shirt factory and and spent that summer working there and it was a really sort of intense one of those really intense textured summers you'd never forget I mean I imagine I wouldn't have forgotten going to the United States and working in a casino but um, this was quite a different experience because it was the summer after the ceasefire and you know, things had kind of stabilized in Northern Ireland and things were supposed to be getting better. But I still experienced this really big divide in the town that I'd grown up in, which was pretty divided. And for the first time ever, I was meeting Protestants from my town in a work situation and spending lots and lots of time with them during the day. And that was quite an interesting experience. How do you think it changed your perspective? Because you were, you know, a young woman, similar to Maeve's age at the time. What made it interesting? I think I went in believing it was going to be all about the work. You know, I, I knew that we, that broadly speaking, material came into the factory and shirts went out the other side. And to get that done, there was this really interesting kind of production line, you know, um, slicing up the material. All the machinists had different bits to sew. I was at the very end of the production line, much like me, I was pressing the shirts. So I thought it would be all about that. And I was very happy actually working in the shirt factory. I loved the work. I loved being on my feet. I loved the way that kind of like time disappeared when you had like hundreds of shirts to iron and you just somehow every, I felt in the zone a lot. It felt very zen. But the side of the factory that took me by surprise was being in the middle of this sort of capitalist system and having fairly predatory bosses in charge of you, um, working in the midst of a lot of women, um, but also women from, you know, the other side, so Protestants. Um, and I really struggled to get a handle on the social scene. I, I wasn't a sort of Maeve who would come in, read a room, understand how everything works and maybe get herself into trouble, but broadly speaking, knew what was going on. I was always felt out of my depth and kind of a bit frightened over, you know, should I take the last chocolate biscuit or does it belong to somebody else? And if I take the last chocolate biscuit, will I get into trouble for the rest of the week with all the other women? <laughs> it was just fascinating to to work in that environment and then and to survive it. You know, it was it was really, really intense. Yeah, I want to ask more about the segregation of the town. You write on the whole, through an enormous effort by the schools, churches, communities, and government, the town was almost completely segregated, which explained how Maeve's first formal meeting with a prod her own age had taken place in the back of an armored police car. So I think the interesting thing about the Troubles was at the point, you know, say the 1993-94, when, you know, just on the cusp of the ceasefire, I, I was around about 18. But at that point in the Troubles, it was almost like a a dance, a really complicated dance that everyone had learned by heart and everyone knew how to make it work. So the, the violence was, was very organized. The response of the British Army to violence was incredibly well organized. Um, but we'd also organized our shops and organized our schools and organized our churches to ensure that, you know, social lives, religious life, educational life was very segregated. And my parents used to talk a lot about how it wasn't like that when they were younger, that they actually did have good relationships with their Protestant neighbours or, you know, they they socialised with Protestants that we ha they hadn't got to this level of mistrust, distrust and organised segregation. That was my experience growing up. 
And I did find that really useful. I mean, it was really important that my parents talked about their childhood and talked about going to dances with Protestant neighbours and, and, and being friends with Protestants because it was so far from my experience. I met Protestants my own age when I went on organised um, excursions, the like of the quiz show. I genuinely did meet a Protestant in the back of a heavily armoured police car with police, you know, police officers with guns. Um and I went on cross community trips where, you know, they just load all of us Catholics and Protestants into a coach and send us away to, you know, um, a residential weekend and make you do things like, you know, build life rafts and stuff. These things that were designed, they put a lot of pressure was put on people my age to make friends and overcome all these structural barriers to you know, hanging out and actually getting to know each other. We were supposed to just do it on a weekend away, having never met anybody ever. <laughs> and then we'd like go back to our schools, go back to our churches, go back to our separate housing estates. And somehow that was supposed to fix the system that the adults who were organizing these trips had actually helped to engineer. I mean, you write about this too, that simultaneously in Northern Ireland, you know, there's this grand culture of storytelling, but simultaneously also a culture of silence. Can you talk more about what that means? You know, what is said and what is unsaid? So what I think is really interesting is my, my my father's side, his family had a really strong culture of storytelling. And like you'd go to my grandmother's house and the TV would go off and the tea would come out and everybody would work their way through the gossip and the kind of important things, you know, the really topical things. And then we'd come into storytelling where the stories that we'd heard, and you could have heard them a hundred times before, but if it was important enough or emotional enough or central enough to our idea of who we were as a family, and where we fitted into the community, the story would come out again and you'd hear it again. It's how I learned to storytell, but equally the kind of thing that ruled our existence in our community was whatever you say, say nothing. And this idea that you kept your lips closed and you didn't say anything to somebody who was from your community or even certain people in your community you couldn't trust. Um, you had to be cautious about maybe you're having a conversation in the field and genuinely you don't know if you're being surveilled by the British Army, if your house has been searched, did somebody leave a bug behind, is your phone being bugged? So there was this also this kind of not culture of secrecy so much as absolute paranoia. Um, so I find those two things still have attention, leave attention in my body. Like I, I want to story tell and I want to bear witness in a way to some of the things that I saw and experienced. Um, on the other side, I'm slightly terrified of saying the wrong thing or using something that I don't have the right to use or bringing something out into the open that really desperately upsets someone. So it's a really complicated, It's it feels like another dance. And I don't feel like anybody taught me the steps to this dance. I'm just trying to make it up as I go along. Yeah, that dance is a huge theme in the book, too, and comes up in this particular scene that I want to talk about. Um, the British have done a so-called controlled demolition of a bomb in Maeve's neighborhood after the bomb was already diffused by an Irishman, uh, but they don't trust him. And that's actually the second time that Maeve lives through a bombing because another one had happened at a Christmas pageant previously. Maeve is covered in glass, looking at her birthday cake, and says she realized that she wanted in on this shit that she wanted to broadcast the truth instead of parroting the government's agenda. 
Of course, she'd framed things a bit differently for the interview panel over in London and for the O'Neills. After witnessing the incident, I decided to become a journalist so I can share the hurt behind the headlines with readers and viewers across Britain and Ireland. Can you talk about, um, as we were discussing before, this balance between like who you tell what and how you tell it? How does that play into the desire, say, to like report on this horrible time or even to write about it in a novel? So I think there's a big thing that Maeve hasn't learned in the book that's going to be a really rude awakening for her is is that if she's going to report on news stories, she's going to be reporting for a channel. She's going to be reporting for somebody that has already bought into um, a program of censorship. And how the troubles were reported on were heavily censored by both the British and the Irish press. And how you were allowed to tell stories, how you were allowed to communicate things that were done were also censored. And Maeve's got this really idealistic view that she'll just take a camera and a microphone and off she'll go. Like before TikTok and before Facebook and before Twitter, that she would be out there just reporting and telling everyone how it's happening, which is really back in 1994. That is not what happened. You you trained to be a reporter and, and much of what you were learning was is not just how to tell the story, but how much of a story you were allowed to tell and who was your audience and who were you broadcasting these things to. So in the book, May's very idealistic, but I think when she actually hits her career, she'll she'll be really shocked at what she's allowed and not allowed to do. Yeah, there's a scene or several scenes in the book where the family is just navigating the different TV channels and like something happens and they flip through all of the different, like the Free State and the RTA and then the BBC, all of it, just to like figure out, well, what, what's the, what can we triangulate from these different news sources? And also part of that is about, is my community important enough to reach this news story? I mean, things that might happen, that happened in my community never reached the British newspapers, never reached the British news screens, but might be reported locally or and maybe might be reported down south. But broadly speaking, so many of the things that happened and the sort of small scale traumas that happened were invisible to a wider audience. They happened in your community. You talked about them. They might get into your local papers, but then they got swallowed up into silence. And it's one of the really interesting things about writing, I suppose, what's now called historical fiction about the troubles is that I I did live through an awful lot of this and bring that experience to my books because the stuff I see on YouTube is only 10% of the story and a story that was already censored and curated. So even while we have these historical archives and we we have the newspapers and we have, you know, news reports, um, it's definitely, it's it's the tip of the iceberg. And I'm, I I love all of that. I like, I love the idea of um, talking to people and, and finding out the things that really happened. Um, and it's difficult to access in a, a community that still has that culture of whatever you say, say nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that whole idea of whether your town even merits coverage is a great transition to this bit I would like you to read from a scene where Maeve is in an auditorium listening to some British boys choir or something singing oh. peace songs, fa la 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 and Maeve just snaps and walks out and a whole bunch of people follow her and then she snaps at this Brit 
Yeah, she's dragged up in front of the choir master in order to apologise, and that's to get him to go away. Nobody really wants her apologising. They just really want rid of him. And, you know, he tries to win her around by saying, you know, look, Maeve, I'm Irish too, in this terrible English accent. And, you know, he says something like, my mum's from Leitrim and my dad's from Kerry and Maeve's brain just explodes. She's like, oh, my God. And she says to them, she, you know, she says to him, you're not Irish. And then she said, what you don't get is I'm not even Irish, not proper Irish. I just want to be. But all I am to the free staters is a dirty northerner. I'm as pathetic as the prods trying to be British when you a lot think they're just a pack of patties. You don't want them. Them down south don't want us. Everyone just wants us to crawl away and die someplace dark where they don't have to listen to us squealing for attention. So that doesn't go down very well with the choir master or her headmistress. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. But it's it's so astute, you know, because I think you're right. She is naive in a lot of ways about how the world works. And like her time at the factory is really just like being slammed into all of these isms, you know, classism, capitalism, patriarchy. But sometimes she's just super duper astute. I think there are things that you learn very early or we learned very early in Northern Ireland. And I, I think many other minority communities will experience this no matter where they are in the world. If you weren't in control of the media channels and you weren't represented on screen and you're trying to belong to this culture or you feel like you should belong and you're constantly getting these microaggressions, these constant rejections at some point, somewhere you're going to feel like exploding because you feel them you know it's there you know that you're not really part of this or you're not part of what the ideal the ideal Irish person is or the ideal British person and it's something that was very hard I think for my community in the sense that you genuinely had young men who were groomed to grow up and die for Ireland, who who genuinely believed that giving their life or taking a life was the absolute best thing they could do to prove they're a patriotic Irish person. And then you cross the border and go down south and, and find that although there's this country that's out there honouring their patriotic dead, they think you're scum and they think you're embarrassing and they think this idea of what you're doing is so far from what they want Ireland to be. And it's a very awkward thing because on one side, people in the Republic of Ireland are venerating their Republican dead. And then on the other side saying, oh, God, no, you can't be shooting people for Ireland. That's terrible. Um, so there's this whole conversation Ireland hasn't yet had with itself about wh why are we venerating a military past that actually, you know, fed into a fairly recent conflict? I mean, is there a way in which we can look at that sort of glamorization of the state being founded in violence and go, do you know what? It was what it was, but that we don't want to venerate that violence is wrong. Wouldn't it have been better if we'd managed to negotiate our way to independence? Wouldn't it have been better for the island as a whole if we'd managed to include everybody in one island, in one nation, without using guns and bombs and violence? Yeah, I think you have Maeve again give voice to this really poignantly after another demonstration against another sectarian murder. Yeah. You know, this desire for the violence to just stop that comes from the people who live under it every day, no matter whether you're living under apartheid or a dictator or an oppressive police state. So if you could 
just read this little monologue from Maeve after this demonstration. Okay, so Maeve wished that one demonstration would work, that something would bring an end to the violence. She didn't want the reunification of Ireland. Anyone with a glimmer of wit knew that the free state didn't want them. They'd fucked off after partition, leaving the North in the shit. And she'd no desire to bend over and accept Britain as her lord and master. Centuries of British rule had taught her she could trust the Brits as far as she could throw them. But she wished they'd the cop themselves to say, fuck them, fuck the whole lot of them, before throwing the guns, Semtex, timers and rocket launchers onto a pile and pouring the incendiary liquid of their bad memories over the whole friggin' lot and setting fire to it. So I think that passage is very much someone who has spent 18 years watching everything fail and being forced to grow up in a system where, you know, you have troops on the street to try and keep the peace. And it's not even peace. It's what the British engineered to be um, an acceptable level of violence, you know, just not so much violence that you would have the mass protests that were occasionally um, sparked and not so much violence that you might call down international condemnation or being forced to make a change. It was, how can we just keep everything at a certain status quo? And it was a very frustrating thing to grow up with. And I think, again, many, many communities across the world experience that, you know, how much poverty is just just enough or not enough to stop you from going out in the streets and agitating for change. There's always a level at which that people will just kind of go, it's okay, it's okay, I can cling on, this is fine. But Maeve is utterly rejecting the kind of two um, opposing cultures in her life, the British and the Irish, and going, it's not good enough. And really wishing that somebody would make that big change. But she's not willing to do it herself, right? She's been so schooled and so groomed into sort of accepting things that she is simply putting up for now and just waiting to leave. Like her whole her whole life has been bred for export. Like she's just, it's, I always think of it as Irish beef, us girls. We were all like bred up, got your exams and then they exported you over to <laughs> another country. To, to You know, uh, it, it was a really strange situation you know yeah it's weird and it also lends itself to some very odd cognitive dissonances too because at the same time that Maeve is like spitting on the British she's also dreaming of going to London absolutely and that is something that um is a really difficult thing for Irish people over and over again right six million people live on the island. And I once got talking to somebody from the Department of Foreign Affairs and they told me that there's 60 million Irish passports in the world. So we might have 6 million people on the island, but we have 60 million Irish passport holders in various parts of the world. And that's not even saying Irish people, just the people who went to the bother of applying or holding their Irish passport. Um, I know for me growing up, there was even when I went to Trinity College Dublin, which was considered the Protestant college for many, many years, when I admitted to people from my school that I was going to Trinity College, oh, you're going to the Prodi University, are you? So even going, staying on the island and going to Trinity College back then was still seen as some sort of betrayal of your community. And for Maeve, 
I think this is something that she shoves right down, right? She, she's hits through, she hates the English and yet she wants to do well. And the only way she can do well is to leave her community and move to London and then have to confront living in England and possibly changing to fit in. Um, so when she's in the book and her factory boss, who takes that interest in her, he gives her how to win friends and influence people to try and educate her on how she can get along with people better. But he also calls her out on her means of communication. He calls her out and says that the way she talks and the way she communicates, you know, works really well in her small community, but it's really not going to work when she moves to England. And she's going to have to change so much more about her to fit in to Britain, you know, which is actually the, you know, the United Kingdom is where she was born technically, but she's not accepted there until she becomes the version of a a British person that will work for them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Andy Strawbridge, her her vile British boss, teaches her a lot of lessons, (laughs) some of them inadvertent, I think, unintentional. Um, I think that's what's so like fascinating about the whole shirt factory situation because in a lot of ways it's just such a such a sharp metaphor for northern ireland itself and for the various situations the various isms that everyone's living under i'm wondering how you think that's changed or if it's changed for northern irish people going to live in london or dublin or wherever i think it's really complicated so i think people from northern ireland who may have gone through the troubles and had first of all, had that trauma, which carries its own weight. Um, Then going over to London, particularly at that time, would have been hard because there was a perception that you were, you may be a terrorist or that there's this, there's this sort of, you know, danger from you being Irish. Sometimes they didn't even distinguish between Northern Irish and Irish. Um, There was this weight to being Northern Irish in London where you did feel like you were, it was so hard to kind of, not betray your own community and not betray your culture and at the same time try and prove that you were a safe quantity, that you had something to give, that, you know, that you were there for the opportunities that were available in London. But also it's very hard growing up knowing the history of the British Empire and having learned that maybe perhaps not on the school curriculum, but, you know, through your own nation and through reading around what the you know, the British did in various different countries that they conquered. And then you're talking quite often to English people who have no idea of their imperial past, who have no idea of some of the atrocities that might have been carried out, who might think that Winston Churchill is one of the greatest leaders in the world and have no idea of the sort of genocidal practices he contributed to. So for me personally, there was always this really complicated again, a dance again, like conversationally, to speak to someone who might condemn your community or your nation for certain barbarities, but yet know nothing about their own huge, you know, massive scale um, industrial type (laughs) violence in other countries. I find that very hard. But equally speaking, I've also found it hard to fit in down south. Um, I live in Dublin now. My husband's French Moroccan. And when we were trying to figure out living in London with our two little kids who were born there, and we were like, where do we stay here and raise these English kids with English accents who don't belong in Northern Ireland and who don't belong in France, who are, you know, what's called third nation, where they're, they're a different nation to both parents. Um, 
or do we move to Ireland? And one of, I can remember really clearly talking to Middy and saying, oh, I know, but you've never lived in Dublin. Um, what if we move there and you don't feel welcome? You know, what, what, like, I'm worried about you fitting in to, to, to Dublin and, and fitting into the Irish Republic. And he, he looked to me and he was like, I don't think I'm the one who's going to have the problem fitting in. And I was like, oh, no, no. And, and it did suddenly strike me that actually it's much easier for a French person to, who's, you know, grown up in the EU to kind of fit into the Republic of Ireland, which, you know, has broadly speaking had unbroken peace since 1922 and is a, very much an active member, an engaged member of the European Union. His whole personality and his whole sense of himself is actually fits in easier down here than say somebody like me or somebody like Maeve who's got a chip on her shoulder who's been interrogating what does the free state mean what does the Republic of Ireland mean what does it mean to be Irish how are you going to expand this idea of what it means to be Irish to be an Irish citizen I think my husband just slots in a lot easier here than I do. He's certainly not starting any big political arguments. I'm the one who you take me to a dinner party and I'm kicking off, you know, about what, how are you going to welcome the loyalists? Where, where, you know, so I feel that having grown up in Northern Ireland with my Irish dad, but my English mother, my mother was English, even though she was raised in Ireland. And I had a grandfather who was a British soldier and another grandfather who was an Irish smuggler. I I feel that my my whole idea of identity is so kind of split between Britain and Ireland, but equally I feel like neither of those countries are particularly excited <laughs> to have me or have, you know, the little state that they between them engineered. How have people in Northern Ireland responded to these new narratives about women in the troubles, you know, because it is a really funny book and it is like a really, it's a great rollicking story, but it is also, there is, you know, this, this current of critique that we've been talking about this whole time. You know, do you feel like these stories are helping exhume some of the buried skeletons or is it like, are we still partway through that process? I think we're beginning to have the conversations we need to have around things like the guilt, I think many people in the Republic of Ireland felt. I, I've talked to people privately after I've done book events and they say to me, you know, I grew up watching the troubles on my TV screen. And as a kid, I'm asking my parents, why aren't we doing something? And my parents are saying we can't do anything. And they carry this guilt as adults that this is something that happened on their territory and their Irish citizens and they did the whole venerating of their patriots but at the end of the day did they put foot across the border to march in a peace process did they you know did they donate money did what what did any of them actually do i think that's quite an interesting um thing to excavate in its own right um i i'm not i'm i'm quite interested in what britain might be working through in terms of um it's past because I feel that since Brexit, you know, where Britain voted to leave the European Union and is now back to sort of its own little island, there's this sense of disintegration there and almost like a sense of nostalgia for those days of empire or, you know, when, when, when Britain was a big ruling power and, and the, and, and being English was the thing. Um, but I'm not sure that they're ready to interrogate their past just yet. I think that there's so much going on at the minute inside the United Kingdom that 
there's no sort of long look back and going, well, how did we get here? How, how did we get to this point that we're becoming more and more insular? Um, so I feel that each one of these books that come out gives another perspective, gives somebody a bit more insight and perhaps gives people a bit more space to to talk about their feelings or to talk about accountability. But I think for me, rather than picking over the bones of the past, the most important thing is looking at this island and thinking, well, wouldn't it be great if we could engineer it, re-engineer the whole island? So if we're talking about at some point in the future, Northern Ireland joining up with the Republic, I don't want to think of that as unification because it's almost like, the North would be subsumed into the South. And I feel so many of the things the Republic of Ireland did over the hundred years of its independence were so dubious. <laughs> I mean, how they treated women, how they treated kids, how the church got a stranglehold over education in the hospitals, the legal system. Um, I would be really interested to see everybody sitting down and going, hey, what did we get right and what did we get wrong? What might we not want to repeat? And how can we engineer this kind of island so that it is robust enough culturally and that the infrastructure is strong enough to stand up to climate change, to stand up to mass immigration, to stand up to all the things we're going to be facing in terms of population, in terms of climate change, in terms of even how our financial institutions run how can we try and set ourselves up to be in a really great position in 100 years from now? We have links in the show notes to Michelle Gallen's new book, Factory Girls, as well as to her debut, Big Girl, Small Town. I listened to the audiobook of Big Girl, Small Town, which meant that I had a little Nicola Coughlin reading in a fabulous Irish accent to me the whole way. So if you like audiobooks, I do recommend it. We'll be back next week. Till then. Take care and stay sharp.